Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about. All while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Her Health Collective is built on a value structure that consists of health, empowerment, and respect for all moms. We strive to help moms transform their self-care. All too often, moms put the needs of others ahead of themselves. We work to support moms and their self-care through having a supportive community and by connecting moms to vetted, reliable women's health experts. Our roundtables provide the opportunity for us to bring our panel of experts together to discuss important issues that are relevant to mother's health. The fall roundtable is on the topic of diet culture and body image. We will be unpacking these topics and all the ways moms are affected by them, which is a lot. (laughs) So with that, we would love to introduce our panel. And if you could just jump on and say what your certification is and what your specialty is. So uh, Anna, if we could go ahead with Anna Lutz, have you pop on and say hi. Hi, everyone. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm Anna Lutz. I'm a registered dietitian and I'm based in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I specialize in eating disorders and family feeding. And all the work I do is from a weight inclusive approach. I'm aligned with the health at every size principles. So I'm thrilled and very excited about this discussion. Wonderful. Anna, thank you so much. I'm going to head over to Carrie Jones. Hi, Carrie. Hello. Thank you for having me. As you said, my name is Carrie. I'm a registered dietitian in Carrie. So I found my place. I do pediatric and maternal nutrition within my practice. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Dr. DeRowan, would you be able to pop on and say hi? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Urquita DeRowan. I'm a family medicine doctor with other board certifications in diversity medicine and lifestyle medicine, and I'm in the D.C. area. Lovely. Thanks so much. Hi, Dr. Lavelle. Can you pop on and say hello to everybody? Sure. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Lavelle, Premier Wellness, and I am a former plastic surgeon, now holistic health provider, working primarily with women professionals who want to increase their energy, weight, and hormones. So excited to be on this today. Perfect. Thanks so much. Dr. Folden. Hi there. Hi. Hi, ladies. Hi. I'm Dr. Lisa Folden. I am a licensed physical therapist and a behavior change specialist, which is essentially a health coach. I specialize in working with busy moms, and I am also aligned with health at every size principles, and I approach all of my clients from an anti-diet and weight loss perspective. Very excited to be here, and I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're so glad to have you here. Hi, Catherine. Catherine Andrew, if you could pop on and just say hi. I'm Katherine Andrew. I am a registered dietitian based out of Raleigh, North Carolina as well. I use a functional approach to help men and women 
dig into issues that are challenging them and keeping them from really enjoying food and, and living life to its fullest. I specialize probably in hormone and digestion issues mostly. Thank you so much. As we progress into the questions, the questions are not directed at anyone in particular. So feel free to hop on whenever you have a thought. We want to hear from everyone and to hear how these different topics are influenced within your industry. So why don't we go ahead and I'll pass it over to Chrissy and we can start with our first question. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I know this is going to be a very enlightening conversation. We'd like to start with the historical element of this. So we'd love to dive into a discussion about the history of diet culture. How has it come to be such a toxic element of our society? Has it always been this way? Or was there a time when this idea of diet culture was first exposed and really kind of took root in our society? I think if we look back, you know, if we look back centuries, what, what people look at has changed. So, you know, in some ages, you were wonderful if you were larger, especially in, say, in Africa and other, like you mentioned, in the Victorian ages, because that meant wealth. That meant that you were secure and stable. And then we flip-flop back and forth. There were times when, you know, having a tan, like now having a tan is a great thing because it means you've got the means to have excess time to be out in the sun. Whereas years ago, it wasn't. You, if you had a tan, that meant that you were, you know, that you were working. So it really depends on the people and the time and the agencies. And something that I want to mention is not just weight, it's not just body image, it's also, and it's not for women, I would say, it's also for men. Because if we look at presidents, you know, look at the height of presidents. The shortest president that we that we had was way back in the you know in the 1700s. So it's it's all a matter of how we look at things over as time changes. This is Dr. Darrowin speaking. I can definitely agree with that because even if you look at women over the years, if you look back in Egyptian times, more women were thinner and they had a certain aesthetic. And then as you go over to other times in history, like in Greece or in England in the 1800s, women were more valued by being a little plumper because it showed your wealth and that you could afford food. And then even more recently in our history is just looking at celebrities and celebrity culture over time. Whereas in the fifties with Marilyn Monroe and everybody like that, they wanted a little more shapely bodies were, were designated and, and kind of desired. And, and now we're seeing changes over the years where it's going towards more thin and, and things like that. And even now more recently, you're seeing people who are having a little bit of different body desires that may not be as natural where they're getting the injections and the different uh, surgeries to take some weight off of their waist and put it to their bottom. So it's definitely been an evolution. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely been an evolution. I think with regard to the toxic part of diet culture, I think we saw it starting in like the early 1900s for most Americans when it just became even more popularized to look a certain way to indicate or look a certain way, usually by way of being thin, to indicate your health status or your 
superior status. And I think it got really overdone in the 80s when we started in the 80s and 90s when we started like the war on obesity. <laughs> and, you know, diets became like all the rage and everybody is, you know, thin and in a unitar working out. And I think the core root of it may have started with the idea that we should be healthier and take better care of ourselves. But I think it was very, very quickly taken over by this focus on the aesthetic, this focus on what you look like, less of a focus on your actual health and well-being, but more on how you look and how you fit in. And for women in particular, you know, sadly, as a marginalized group in many ways, we have often and always been valued by the way that we look. And, and our value has come from that. So this idea of dieting and maintaining a certain size or weight or hip ratio or whatever it is for that particular time in history has always been a little bit more important than actually managing our, our health and our, our real wellness. So I would say for us, where, where it became a toxic feature is probably, you know, I'd say maybe 1970s and 80s, um, but it's been around and there's some there's a lot of history to this. This is kind of a, you could go into this for a long time and I will not, but I know Fearing the Black Body is a great book to kind of take you through some of the historical evolution of thinness and dieting and body shaming and all of that, so. And just to jump into what Dr. Folden was saying, that it definitely affects women more. And I like to, just wanted to emphasize that I feel like it starts at such a young age and in ways that we maybe don't even think about how it's infecting children. Like things like Barbie dolls showing that ideal size or Disney princesses. It wasn't until recently that we started having Disney princesses that reflected other people on different body sizes. So it definitely is so ingrained in our society and definitely has that kind of toxic nature and effect on our children and us from a young age as we grow up. Thank you, Carrie. And thank you everyone that contributed to that. I don't mean to put you on the spot, Anna, but I just know that you, we've talked about this quite a bit. If you could just give a quick summary on the definition of diet culture. That way, now that we've been discussing the history of it, it might be a little bit more clear to our listeners. Great. Well, I really usually reference Christy Harrison's definition of diet culture. I think she's written a really thorough definition. And also in response to the last question, her book, Anti-Diet, has a really researched history of what we're discussing. And I'm so glad Dr. Folden mentioned Fearing the Black Body also. Both of those resources, I think, are so pertinent to our discussion. But really looking at Christy Harrison's definition is she talks about that it's a set of beliefs that I don't have it here in front of me, so I'm not going to read it, but it's a set of beliefs that really elevates eating a certain way and looking a certain way is morally better. And there's the health piece to it. So not only are you, you know, there's the connection with health if you eat in a certain way and look a certain way, but also you're morally superior to other people. And so it's not just about being on a diet, but that our whole culture is, you know, has these subtle and very not subtle messages. And I think that that kind of virtue piece of it is a really important piece to kind of start to notice and understand. Thank you so much for, for adding that definition in there. The pressure women experience to achieve a certain body, I'm going to put air quotes around this, ideal can be seen throughout history. We've discussed the history of diet culture. 
Now let's discuss the female body. We did touch on that just a little bit about how during certain time frames, women's bodies might be more voluptuous and they might be more slender. Beauty standards are not consistent. They are specific to periods in history and are also culturally defined. An example of this is Victorian England and the use of corsets and crinolines. I don't even know if I said that right, <laughs> but everyone knows what I mean. In many cultures, beauty standards of women advertised social status and power, which some of you had already discussed a little bit. It's beneficial for women to understand how we got here to a place where women are subjected to higher standards of appearance and objectification than men, to a place where people believe that beauty and thinness is a route to success. Will you all share some historical knowledge on a quote unquote perfect body and, and how it was stressed for women, even though all bodies are different? And if you can try to make some parallels to today. I think that some of it is what we mentioned earlier. It's this idea of superiority or to be looked at as someone with some notoriety or someone of importance, looking a certain way, fitting the part. And women, which is even weird to even say it when I'm talking about it in a his historical context because of all the amazing things women have done in history, but women were very much undervalued for their contributions and more so you know, it's the idea of like a, a trophy wife. It, it was about what you looked like, how you complimented your partner. You know, it wasn't expected in certain parts of our history that you could, you know, create a career and create a life for yourself. It was, you need to attain some status by getting a man. <laughs> and in order to do that, you need to look a certain way. So there was so much stress put on your physical appearance. And again, whether that was a time or a culture where thinness was valued or more curviness and more of a voluptuous body was valued. Wherever you were in history and in culture, it was important even to this very day to look the part, to fit the bill, to be a woman with great beauty. And it was something we owed to society, really. Like, I owe you my beauty. I owe you my thinness. It is a part of my value and worth as a woman. So yeah, tons of parallels to today. Like literally, it's the exact same thing we have shifted in maybe the size or the shapes, <laughs> but it is the same thing. Women are still looked at, objectified. You know, we, listen, we're still protesting these things. Like we're still dealing with it every day. It's like in sports, you know, can't cover up. In school, you must cover up. It's just this whole thing about policing women's bodies, how they look and what they do. And I hope that we will <laughs> eventually be through this fight, but it's it's ongoing. It's been going on for literally hundreds of years. So. Yeah, I think there's too many parallels for today in my, in my opinion. Something I think about is the ideal body seems to be the, the thing in history that's harder to, to achieve. So when there wasn't enough food, you know, being, in a, being fat, being in a large body was this sign of wealth and fertility and this wonderful thing that, you know, people could achieve. And now that we have, at least here in the United States, an, an abundance of food available, of, of course, there is significant food insecurity in our country. So I don't want to diminish that. But there's 
cheaper food available, it is harder, quote unquote, to achieve this kind of ideal body of being quite thin. And so I think that is something that's kind of interesting is that wealth and success is kind of the symbol of that is kind of this kind of harder to achieve body. I just want to kind of put also in that when we're talking about historical changes of the women's body, you know, one of those most important things and impactful was how the Chinese for over a thousand years would bind women's feet. And it initially started to be because, you know, if you had your feet bound, you could not work. That, therefore, that meant that you were wealthy. But it eventually turned into something where even those who were in the lower classes bound their feet. And that made them more since they couldn't go anywhere, they would just sit there and do piecework. And so on both ends, there was something that was enforced upon women to get them to fit a specific profile. And a lot of these profiles that they were striving to achieve were put in place by people of power. And do you feel there's been any improvements in weight bias with regard to power, success, and social status nowadays? I would say the only improvement, and this is probably one of the few benefits of like social media, not, not few benefits, one of the benefits of social media is we have more access now. We can see other people in other bodies, you know, that we wouldn't consider mainstream, thin, beautiful, whatever. We can see them doing things that we may not have had access to previously. So I feel like that's been an improvement. You know, I can, I can go to someone's Instagram page who is in a larger body, you know, expressing their body positivity or showing the amazing things they can do with their body and treating themselves in a way that the world doesn't usually treat them. And so that has been eye-opening and extremely inspiring. Outside of that, <laughs> I don't know how many improvements there has actually been in, in weight bias. We maintain our weight bias as a society and as a country. And the way that you know we do is by watching television and by reading magazines or going on social media. You know, mainstream is always thin. The thin ideal still exists. If you are in the Hollywood world and you're in a larger body, you are not cast as the main attraction. You are the sidekick, the fat friend sidekick. And it's been our whole lives growing up. I mean, just recently they started to make mannequins in stores in larger, you know, shapes or sizes. So we've been seeing this forever. I'm, I'll be 40 this year. My entire life, like you mentioned the Barbies, my entire life, it's been that size Barbie, that size mannequin. It's not changed very much. We just have more people that are vocal and speaking up against it which you know, I'm so grateful for, but it, it's definitely very much still there. I agree with you that social media is definitely helping show that there are other people that can identify with. For example, there is a controversial singer, I'll say her name, Lizzo, that <laughs> is very focused on body positivity and a lot of people and there have been controversial statements about her and everything like that but it's showing people that there are different sizes and you can be happy and you can be healthy 
and also where people are going on Pinterest and other different things to find examples of people who look like them out there in the media because it was harder back in the day when everything was in print and you were looking in certain magazines and you didn't see yourself or even on the runway where they just had New York Fashion Week but most of the runway sizes don't go up, but to a certain extent, and uh, even plus size starts at a size like 12, which is crazy because that's the average size of most American women. So I just, I think that, like you said, we are moving forward. Like there weren't Barbies of different sizes, even different ethnicities and things like that. And now in the, the past few years, they have come out with a plus size Barbie and they are showing children other representation out there. I definitely think that it's gotten better. I definitely think there's, we're making progress, but there's definitely still so much work we have to do. I know that a lot of research has been coming out about the weight bias that's kind of ingrained within society of individuals that are considered obese, receive lower starting salaries, they're ranked as less qualified, they work longer hours, they're deemed unsuitable for employment, less likely to be interviewed. And it really, that's just the workplace. Clearly, there's issues within healthcare of having less access, lower time with their doctors and healthcare people for getting less education. Of course, that leads to the poor treatment outcomes, which just kind of brings it all around. So there's definitely a lot more work that we have to do. And hopefully in the future, we'll, we'll get there. Staying optimistic, but still a lot of work we have to do. Thank you very much, Carrie, for that. Uh, we mentioned briefly, you know, how diet culture is becoming more well-known. It's becoming more popularized. Many health at every size practitioners, I, I've seen this mentioned multiple times in social media posts and things like that. They, they mention this idea of the terms being co-opted, health at every size terms being co-opted by the fitness and wellness industries. Can you give some examples of what is meant by that? What is meant by this idea that it's being co-opted? It's great that these terms and the, these movements are being more mainstream. I think that we don't want that to change, but I think as it becomes more popularized, people want to make money off of it, right? And so then people will use these popular terms and it can be another diet. So they're using terms like lifestyle change. And, you know, if you just even think about Weight Watchers calling themselves WW instead of Weight Watchers and saying it's a behavior change, not a diet. And so they're using these kind of buzz phrases as we have more and more research that diets don't work, that diets cause people harm, that people that are selling the idea that thinness is better, you are using these new terms when it's just the same thing that it's always been. And so that's kind of, you know, the negative part of this information getting out there. So I think we all just have to be, you know, smart consumers when we're looking at social media and, and other kind of way that we consume media. I agree. And I think diet culture is driven by money. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. It is about profiting off people's insecurities. That's what it boils down to. If I can get you to believe that you're just, you know, you're still not there. You still got a little bit more to go, lose a few more pounds. You can do it. You can look like this person. You can live your very best life. If I can get people to believe that I can have their money forever and I can have them as a customer or a client forever. And so as our society starts to shift and people's eyes are opened up to the health at every size movement, 
and to this idea that, you know, diets really are not sustainable, nor are they healthy, nor are they beneficial. Tons of research out there to show that people who engage in intentional weight loss, less than 5% of them are able to maintain that for beyond one or two years. And I don't even think they have the research for five years and beyond because nobody, <laughs> nobody does. So now that that's becoming more, it's not mainstream, but it's becoming more popular. Yes, diet culture has to figure out how to recoup their clients and not steer people away and expand their audience. So yes, they are absolutely taking terms, you know, the very popular book, Intuitive Eating by uh, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Fresh, amazing book. And that's being attached to fasting, <laughs> intuitive fasting. Let me teach you how to intuitively not eat. For me, the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but it will get people's attention and it will get them like interested, like, oh, you know, because so many of us hold on to this hope that like there is a perfect diet out there somewhere. I can find something that can get me where I need to be. And it's because it's been ingrained in us forever. So yeah, diet culture, because it's about money and consumers and having, you know, more profit, they will take the terms that are meant really totally against dieting and incorporate them into their diet and rebrand it. It's marketing, it's strategy, and it's, it's about money. I totally agree with that, that it really is, it is definitely all about money. And I also wanted to point out a, a couple of things. One of them is that studies recently have been showing that being slightly overweight is actually more protective to your health going forward. Okay. Um, slightly overweight across the board, no ifs, ands, or buts. But I also want to point out that one of the things on the other side is that we're saying that uh, being overweight or being obese, that you can be metabolically healthy and then everything is okay. And I will say that, yes, you absolutely can be overweight, obese, and be metabolically okay. You can be very thin and be metabolically not healthy at all. So what we want to do is number one, get our, our lab work, get our, our things in that sort in the right optimal level, whatever weight we are. That's, that's one thing. The next thing that I do want to point out that is even if we're not looking at metabolics, we also want to look at what's happening to us physiologically. And the, I'm just going to say that the truth is that with extra weight, you are putting more stress on joints. And that's just a fact of life. I mean, just imagine taking the 50 pound weight and carrying that around all day long. There is a stress. So there is a balance. And that's what we have to learn, that there is a balance between what is right for our bodies, and that's individual for every single person, what's right for our bodies metabolically, not looking at what we look like, but metabolically and physiologically, those are the two things that have to jive. And then we're at that optimal health for ourselves. And that's different for everyone. I agree with that uh, just to an extent. And in, in my line of work as a physical therapist, there's a lot of talk about extra weight on joints and you know how that's good or bad or indifferent. And what I will say is you can have a very negative impact on your joints if there is a lot of weight gained in a short window of time. It's sort of a shock to the system. So if you gain a lot of weight in a very narrow window, your joints may feel that. But in general, overall, the, the typical weight gain that I think most, most of us experience over the course of our lives, that has not really shown to make any significant effect to your joints. And even if it does, or if you're having joint pain and you happen to be in a larger body, 
the problems that we're running into is people in those positions are just being told to lose weight. And the reality is, is that is not achievable for most people, for the vast majority of us. And so in healthcare, when we're dealing with these disparities, and like I said, I see it in my line of work a lot. I've been a physical therapist for 14 years people are being discriminated against because they're in larger bodies. And the assumption is, oh, you're fat. You just have too much weight and load on your joints. You just need to lose weight. That's not true. It's not the case for most of us. Again, if these are people that have always been in larger bodies, their joints are not under any significantly severe stress that it's not been their entire lives. It has more to do with addressing everything else. What's the flexibility like? You know, What's your strength like? What's your endurance like? We can improve health behaviors, we can uh, attack your issues from different ways. It doesn't have to always be go back to, to weight. And I would say far more of an issue than weight, because we like to just kind of lump it together. I would say that some of the negative health factors that we're concerned about have more to do with the body fat percentage versus the weight. You know, we know people are in larger bodies and they have more muscle tone and they just weigh more. That's a different situation than someone who just has more fatty tissue or more visceral fat. But even in those situations, again, our bodies are supposed to be different. I, and I, I say this on my social media, and sometimes I get a lot of slack for it. The reality is some of us will be fat, and it's okay. <laughs> like some of us will be fat, and it's totally fine. That doesn't make us unhealthy. It doesn't necessarily make us healthy. That's your individual journey. But it does not, it's not a early death sentence. It's not something that should necessarily be looked at as negative. And it's not something that we have to feel this desire to fix. We're obsessed with fixing ourselves. You know, anything out of place, anything wrong, let me fix it. And weight, in my opinion, is just not something that always needs to be fixed. I think you can improve your health. You can change your health behaviors. For some people, it'll result in a slightly lower weight. For some people, it might result in a higher weight and others, it'll be no difference in your weight. But you can pursue health without any regard to your body weight or size. And that's just my preference on how to pursue it because when you focus in on weight and your weight doesn't change, you are less likely to stick with the positive health behaviors. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. It's health first and weight and appearance second. It's gotta be that way. And just knowing that it's different for everyone. So I agree. Thank you everybody so much. That was a very, very interesting conversation to listen in on. Do you see any other consequences emerging as awareness of diet culture increases and with the popularization of movements like health at every size? I guess the one thing I, I can think of negatively here, I mean, there's a lot, plenty, but right, goes back to what, what Dr. Folden was saying, or maybe it was Dr. Lavelle about the, the money-making industry, right? That this has now become something that is going to be another path for someone to create a program or a supplement or a book or you name it on, which is not always a bad thing, right? Information is great and education is wonderful. But I think all of these things, the filter that we have to come back through is this, this helping me connect to my body more or is it actually helping me disconnect to my body, right? That so many of these quote unquote good tools that we've been given over the years, whether it's a tracker of some sort or a way to monitor something, right? Like again, all bring us back to how can this help someone else make more money? How can they make me rely on a system or another person or a program or a tool more and myself less? and in the process, trusting myself less and becoming more and more disconnected from what my body is telling me. 
So even down to the conversation about, you know, weight and health and joint and all these things, right? Like it still comes back to a lot of times, what is, what are we watching? What are we listening to? What are we being driven by that's actually pulling us away from how we're connecting with ourselves? So I think that would be the one thing I would say about the danger of the health at every size is just like any other hot topic, right? It has the potential to actually remove us from what is really going to help us heal and become healthier rather than connect us. Something else I think about as a kind of a negative consequence to health at every size and intuitive eating and non-diet becoming more popularized is that we lose sight of what is true, how it started and what, what is true. There's lots of myths around what health at every size is and what it's not, what intuitive eating is and what it's not. And I think the more these terms become popularized, then people don't really understand what it is. And there are these very false myths of, you know, people thinking that it's about doing whatever you want and, you know, not listening to your body or, you know, you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that the health at every size movement started as a social justice movement. And, you know, as it's becoming more popularized and because of social media and it becoming more mainstream, I think that piece is being lost. And so I, I think that's, you know, a negative consequence that, you know, again, there's, it's two sides to every coin. Thank you to the sponsor of this episode and our fall initiative sponsor and just one of our beloved Her Circle studio partners, Total Row Raleigh. This is a rowing class worth getting excited about. Total Row classes are rowing centric, making them low impact, total body, and effective. With small classes and certified coaches, their program offers a local community vibe with professional quality. Every class is scalable to any age or ability, making total role classes available to anyone. You know, we've gone to a couple of their classes now and I just love it. It's so much fun. I love that they have no mirrors anywhere in the studio. There's no focus on body image. Instead, everything revolves around good form, gaining strength, listening to your body, feeling powerful, and most importantly, having fun, which is something I do every time I've gone to one of their classes. Yes. I love how they use empowering lingo during class that makes you appreciate the body that you're in right now and what it's doing for you, rather than having you focus on an ideal that you're hoping your body will eventually look like. Absolutely. Be sure to check out Total Row Raleigh and discover a better way to row. I'd like to expand a little bit more on the contradictory scientific evidence. We've discussed it just a little bit when we were talking about joints. One of the components of diet culture that the health and fitness industry tends to stress is that health and weight loss are related. And we would love to clarify this for our audience. Why does it seem that weight loss improves health. For example, somebody that loses weight will say that their blood pressure increased, their cholesterol was lower. They lowered their risk of diabetes. And we just would like to have you all share a little bit more about the scientific evidence or trusted resources that point that weight loss isn't the cure for everything. I guess I can start because I love the conversation that we're having about body positivity and all of those things, but obesity does affect livelihood and 
people who have higher BMAs can have different parts of their body be affected. It can affect their blood pressure. You can just think about the ABCs of the causes of BMI, like people have higher levels of arthritis, more back pain, higher blood pressure. If you're thinking about the C's, you're thinking of an increased risk of cancers and cholesterol for diabetes. You, there are so many different things that people with higher BMIs and obesity have. And I think that it's important for us to stress the body positivity and kind of figuring out ways to not do fad diets and beat yourself up if that's how your body is, but also figuring out ways to change your lifestyles. And as a result of that, then more than likely some of the weight will come off and trying to just focus on being well. So there, there have been numerous studies just on the effects of obesity. There have been, um, the New England Journal of Medicine came out with a study in 2017, I believe, where they talked about the health effects of overweight and obesity in 195 countries. And it showed that increased BMI accounted for 4 million deaths globally. And that was due to different things. So it could be due to just the increased inflammation from the body from different cells or fatty liver and all of those different things that the obesity can have. So I think the focus should be more on lifestyle changes and figuring out ways because like you guys mentioned with the industry, they, they always are throwing out a fad diet, like try this, try that, or trying to get to this perfect ideal quickly, but there isn't a magic pill. There isn't something that will just make you snap and do it. And that's a lot of times why people fail their diets and, and, and they go and move on to the next and the next. So some resources that I would recommend that people look into, definitely nutritionfacts.org. They have a lot of evidence-based medicine talking about different diets and how different nutrition components can affect you and in, in different parts of your body and different things. And there are two books written by kind of like the father of lifestyle medicine, How Not to Die, which looks through the different parts of your body. So your brain, your heart, and all of those different things. And it talks about how to eat and to live and exercise and meditate and all of those kinds of things that come along with decreasing the stress and impact on the body, getting more sleep and all of those things that you don't think can impact weight. And then there's another one called how not to diet, which is the follow-up on that. And it looks at the studies of each of the major diets. And a lot of them do work. I'm not going to lie. And I know a lot of uh, people who are here may be like, okay, I'm going to do the keto diet and it works. But then what happens when you stop it? So looking into what works, why it works, and what may be better for you and what may be better for you may be different for me. So trying to figure out what is best for your body. And like you guys said, how to listen to it. I do want to jump in really quickly because we're, we're using some terms that are like <laughs> to, to haze people. Those terms are like, make you want to feel like you're being stabbed. And one of them is BMI. OMG. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, I, like I can't, BMI makes me want to vomit. I'm so sorry. It is so hard to hear BMI because I, understanding the history of it created by a mathematician has zero, when I say zero, like negative numbers, nothing to do with our actual health at all literally a ratio of your height and weight <laughs> and it does not apply to us and there's if you read the book health at every size by dr linda bacon 
they talk about the history of BMI and how these boards met to figure out, you know, what was healthy, what was not. And the, based on the research, it made more sense for like healthy BMI to be considered something higher and instead it was lowered. <laughs> so there's a lot to play in that. When we talk about research studies, I understand that, you know, the lay people are not gonna just be looking at research for fun. That is not my idea of fun on a Saturday night. But what's really important to, to digest about some of the research that we see is what I like to say is following the money. Like who's funding this research? Who stands to benefit from this research? If it's a corporation that specializes in weight loss drugs or <laughs> weight loss materials and components, that might not be the research you wanna look at. So when we use terms like BMI, when we use terms like even obesity, I, that's not even, because again, it was based on this idea of the BMI, which is in my opinion, complete trash. It should be thrown out of healthcare because it does not adequately represent the health of any person. And then when we do dig into the re research, the good research, because there's good research out there and we do see causal relations, well, not causal, we do see associative relationships between people's body size and their health conditions. That is an absolute fact. The problem is we sometimes misinterpret this research to assume that because fat people may have a higher rate of this or that or that, is that it's a causal thing. And it's not always causal. There is an association that may be health behaviors. It may have a whole lot to do with what we touched on briefly earlier is the discrimination that fat people face in the medical field. So if you're not getting adequate health care because you're being discriminated against, you feel like trash every time you go see your doctor, you might start to develop a cancer that's never caught. Also, you can be misdiagnosed because the first thing that you're being confronted with in the healthcare system for a lot of people in fat bodies or large bodies is that this, the cause of your issue is weight. You just need to lose some weight. And there people are being like misdiagnosed or not diagnosed from real life-threatening diseases. And if we could shift the focus from your body weight is causing a problem <laughs> to let's look at some new health behaviors that we can try to make you healthier with no regard to the size of their bodies. Because the reality is if we're living in a way that is healthy for us, we're making good decisions about you know, the activities we participate in, the nutritious foods we're feeding ourselves, our bodies will settle into a healthy region. It just may not be the ideal like look of health for people because we see fat as being so unhealthy. So I could say more, but I don't want to dominate this conversation. So I'm going to be quiet, but it's really hard for me to hear BMI and obesity. Cause I'm just like, oh, I wish those terms would just die. Yeah. I was just going to also talk about BMI because both of my kids um, do sports. Well, they're retired now out of college, but, uh, and they were always all of their lives considered overweight or even on that border of being obese because they had a higher BMI and it hadn't, I mean, they were in the best shape and all it was was muscle. So we know that muscle, not pound for pound, because pound for pound, they weigh the same, but volume wise, muscle is much denser than fat. And therefore you're going to be, you're going to weigh more for the same height and your BMI is going to be higher. So I agree with you, Dr. Bolin, we need to throw out BMI. However, I will also say that, you know, that one of the things we have seen, and I'm going to take this away from traditional medicine and go more into the lifestyle slash functional medicine arena, where we're looking at more optimal levels of, of everything. And we see that 
more fat leads to more inflammation. And inflammation is at the basis of so many other things, heart disease, diabetes, arthritis. So that is more, I think, where the issue is, not so much in the weight per se of itself, but in the amount of inflammation that a body has. And if you can lower that inflammation, you lower your risk for all of those secondary conditions. I appreciate everyone's comments. And I really wanted to add about and highlight what Dr. Folden said about causation versus correlation. You know, a few things that come to mind. One is there's lots of correlation in healthcare or in health. Of one I always like to bring up is bald men are more likely to have heart disease, but we don't try to grow hair on, on men to re decrease their risk of heart disease. Similarly, taller women, the taller you are, you're at an increased risk for ovarian cancer, but we don't tell women they need to be shorter. And so same thing, there's this correlation, but because of our biases, we say, well, then you need to lower your weight. And if you, if we control in the really big health studies, like the NHANES and the Framingham health studies that show this correlation between weight and different health conditions, blood pressure, high glucose, et cetera, if you control for weight cycling, those correlations actually go away. And I feel like this is a really important part because the people that are weight cycling and weight cycling is when you lose weight and gain weight and lose weight and gain weight, the people that are weight cycling are in larger bodies and are being told to diet. And so that to Dr. Lavelle's point causes inflammation, causes health, you know, the, when the correlation goes away, when we, we control for weight cycling, that actual correlation goes away. We need to be looking at how can we reduce weight cycling? How can we provide better health care for people in all bodies so they can take care of the body they have in this moment? And so there's so much research that we need to dig into. One other quick thing I'll say is the American Medical Association many years ago did a, had a whole committee to decide if, and I'm going to use this term because they use it, obesity should be a medical condition. And that's not a term I usually use. And their committee looked at all the research and recommended to the American Medical Association that it should not be a medical condition. And the AMA went against that, their own committee's recommendation based on research, which I think just shows the, the levels of biases that our healthcare system is operating under. And one other really quick thing, some of the diseases and conditions that we attribute to being caused by weight gain or fat, you know, body composition, Oftentimes those conditions actually increase your fat and or weight gain. So sometimes there is a causal relationship, but it is in the reverse. And the, the reason that's important to say is because people in larger bodies are blamed for being fat and for having diseases. We blame them. It's because you're not doing something right. You're not taking good care of yourself. You know, you need to just diet and work harder and you'll be healthier. And in reality, a good portion, a large portion of our health <laughs> and a large portion or a large portion of our, our weight and body size is not in our control like that. Not like we think it is. We think we can diet, do the next thing and fix it and we're good. But as we mentioned earlier, for most people, the weight comes back and our metabolism is lowered and then we cycle and we go through this whole thing for our whole lives. So the reality is getting people to focus on just living in a healthy way, whatever their bodies look like and not focusing on that. Because again, sometimes the disease itself is what's causing the weight gain. Yeah, and sometimes even the treatment for the disease. So with diabetes, you know, insulin actually causes more fat gain, you know, and we, we don't even think about that.
Thank you everybody so much for that conversation. We're gonna kind of jump topics just a little bit. I'm sure somebody here in this group, if not most of us had said to them at some point, you don't even look like you had a baby or something along those lines. Uh, statements like that are a classic example of someone trying to compliment another person when in fact it's spreading diet culture and fat phobic ideas and, and biases. What are some other examples of fat phobic and diet culture soaked statements? How much time do we have? No, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, you look so good. I feel like any comment about someone's weight is rooted in diet culture, right? So, you know, have you lost weight Has or commenting on someone else? Look, that other person has gained weight. Gosh. I feel like this should be easy, but it's a little bit harder coming <laughs> the, to mind. Um, the she's, she's really let herself go. That's a good one. Yeah, that ha happens a lot for moms. <laughs> so really just any comment about a person's weight. It's, it's not our place to, to yeah. speak in that arena. Now, if any of our listeners have happened to make a statement like this innocently, not you know aware of it how does one begin to revamp the own biases that we might hold um and how you know a slip of the tongue we might say something like that to a friend or in just general passing i think the first thing is you have to be aware you know i think a lot of us don't even think about what's coming out of our mouths so the very first step is being aware of what you're saying and what it can mean to others i think it's a lot of unlearning and and sort of you know just no longer doing the status quo. I think a, a short, quick rule is, you know, don't comment on anybody's body. Like that's just it. Just unless they invite you or ask an opinion about something, don't comment on anyone's body. Pregnant, just had a baby, all of it. Just don't comment. And I was going to say, if you have made one of the statements, just kind of self-reflecting, like, why did I make this statement? Am I trying to influence their weight? Why do I think they need to lose weight? Just kind of having that internal dialogue to just kind of hopefully reveal your own biases and hopefully work through this. How about when someone makes a comment about their own body to you? How would one, not a professional, just anyone respond to that? I think what we see a lot is like, you know, you have a friend and she'll be like, oh, I'm feeling so fat or whatever. I gained so much weight. And then our response is like, oh, you're not fat. You're beautiful. So that's another diet culture statement <laughs> because fat and beauty can co coexist. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I think what you can do is try to support them. You know, here's, we all do this. Like I would, I would argue that everyone on here has done this at one point or another. Nobody is perfect. We are human beings. So giving yourself some grace and giving them some grace. So it's not about chastising them but maybe just saying like, oh, you know, I don't, that's not true. Or I don't think that's true. Or, you know, or you can, if it's more comfortable for you, you can not respond to it because if you don't play into it and have a conversation about it, maybe they're less likely to say those negative things. But if my friends say something like, oh, I look so fat or, oh, I'm not this. Or, I'm like, oh, you, well, I don't agree. I don't think that's true, you know, but, you know, it, ultimately people have to make these reconciliations within themselves. I think one other thing along those lines is just helping people think about their words, right? So like feeling fat and then looking, you know, beautiful, like what, what does that mean to you? And what, like, what, tell me what feels off and what feels like it hurts and what feels wrong right now. And why do you, you know, why do you not feel good? Like describe that in words that actually you can feel and touch and see and 
instead of our, our cultural words, right? So I think pushing back a little bit gently on people with grace, as you said, on, um, you know, like just getting people to use their words a little differently rather than the lazy version, which is what, you know, we tend to use because we see it on TV or elsewhere on social media. I love that, Catherine, because that's that's my go-to. If there, if my children say something um, that ca catches me off guard or I don't know how to respond, is just just to ask a question back. Like, and that's exactly what you're saying. You know, well, tell me why you'd say that. Tell me, you know, I'm surprised you would say that. Tell me more, because they may be trying to communicate something different to you than what's kind of our society is kind of saying what they should say, which is a comment on their body. Thank you. That's all fantastic. That's wonderful. Going to take it into the direction of mental health now. We would love to discuss the concept of snapback culture and the role it plays specifically on a mother's mental health. How is this societal pressure on women to get their body back to a certain size, to look a certain way after giving birth, to be a certain shape, impacting the overall health of new moms? I feel like new moms are already dealing with so much. They're learning how to feed and care for their newborn. They're recovering from childbirth. They're experiencing hormonal fluctuations. And then that's on top of considerable challenges like lack of sleep, pain, breastfeeding, stress. So there's so many things that's already going on. So to add that unrealistic expectation of snapback culture can definitely cause moms to neglect their own rest and recovery and increase their risk for developing a variety of mental health challenges, whether it's postpartum depression or other things like delaying their postpartum recovery or breastfeeding difficulties. So really just, it has such a impact. We definitely need to support moms, especially the new moms. Thank you so much, Carrie. We have seen a huge increase within the last two decades in the number of people who are affected by orthorexia nervosa. Coming from the fitness industry, my view of this might be a little more skewed because I feel like everyone I know <laughs> has this to some degree within the fitness and wellness industry. Would you please define orthorexia and explain why it is not yet in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, and why it's classified as other specified feeding or eating disorder? And why is this particular disorder on the rise? The entomological, I think that's the word, <laughs> a root behind that is ortho, which means straight, and then straight eating. So it's people who feel that there is a specific way of eating, and only that way works. So we can see that in all different ways. We've got people who eat paleo and, you know, if you eat a grain, you're going to die. And same thing with, with uh, you know, vegetarians and vegans and not in it for the health part, but for in it for the belief that what they are doing is the absolute best and only way to eat. So that's where it starts. And then it can, it builds out into, you know, feeling that if you eat anything outside of that, that there's something wrong with you. And that brings all of that emotional um, torture, torment, really. Um, and so it just kind of goes out from there, from the, this is the only way to eat and anything outside of that, any one, or even if I'm doing that, then there's something wrong. So that's, the, that's where it begins. And I think too, it's the obsession with those behaviors. So it's the obsession with my healthy way of eating, the obsession with my 
specific exercise or, or way of moving. I think anybody can fall into this because it, it's a slippery slope, right? When we get on these, our fitness trackers and we're like, oh, I didn't burn enough calories today. I got to go back out. Or I've seen people like stop in the middle <laughs> of like work to like run in place to get their points up, you know, get their steps up or it's sort of this obsession. And, you know, we know this, the term, any, anything, even a good thing, too much of a good thing can be bad. So when you're obsessing over something and you're putting this idea of like, my physical health, even if we're talking about real health, but we're putting our physical health above everything else, our mental, emotional, spiritual well-being, then it's not really healthy because we're not giving attention to the other parts of us. You know, we are far more than a body, like each of us. So there's more to address in our health than just what we're eating and how we're moving and what we look like. Totally agree. And I think the reason we're seeing it more and more is because of, you know, fad diets over the years have become more and more extreme. They're just being kind of layered on top of each other and becoming popularized. Even going to the grocery store, you'll see, you'll see about fad diets. And so I think it's these fad diets, if you look at it right now, are kind of everywhere. Going to restaurants, they'll have the paleo menu or the this menu or that menu. And so I think it's becoming more part of accepted, like that is how you're supposed to eat. You're supposed to be always on some kind of restrictive fad diet. And then people really can fall into it. And orthorexia has all the same, can have all the same health consequences as any of the other eating disorders. I think it's a fairly new proposed diagnosis. It's, you know, was first written about, that term was written about um, by someone who wasn't even proposing it to be in the DSM-5 or 4 at the time, probably. And so I think it takes years and years and years for it actually to get into the DSM-5. I don't know if it will, but certainly from a medical and mental health standpoint, it has just as serious consequences as other eating disorders. It's also hard for individuals or the regular public to know what to do. So they look to professionals or people that call themselves doctors or know what they're saying. And they say to don't eat grain or don't drink dairy. And they just don't know what to do. And it's overwhelming. And so you just start adopting all of these different practices and it slides downhill pretty quickly. So thank you all. The vast majority of people have a desire to look good and have their appearance appreciated by others. And it's very hard to let that attachment to appearance go when we're surrounded by it all the time. How do you personally practice body appreciation and how do you encourage it with your own clients or patients? I coach moms, specifically busy moms, and we spend a lot of time talking about this it's obviously very normal to want to look good and to get compliments. And in my personal experience with like diet, weight cycling, dieting, yo-yo dieting is that I did, I went like really hard for six months, lost a bunch of weight, was looking great. Everybody was telling me how awesome I looked. <laughs> and then I got really tired and went back to sort of a normal workout schedule. Instead of seven days a week, I just did like four. And then I gained the weight back and then I wasn't getting those compliments. And I had to deal with the mental trauma of like, you know, feeling like, oh, people don't really see me as like, you know, as I guess attractive when I'm not thinner, my thinnest self. And so there's a lot that plays into that. But I think for a lot of my clients, the first step is just recognizing that that external validation, while it can feel good, is not necessary for you to 
value and appreciate yourself. And so we don't even go as far as body positivity early on. We start with just neutrality. Let's appreciate our bodies because it's brought us through something. Uh, it's carried life into the world or it's gotten me through a pandemic or it gets me up and down the stairs every day. So we start there with like the utility. What is your body doing for you that you're grateful for? As a physical therapist, I work with people who have, you know, amputations or who cannot walk or who, you know, so recognizing the full spectrum of like the potential of your life on this planet, you could be in a different position with less abilities or less whatever. So just starting there with appreciation for what you can do and what you do have. I would say that the biggest thing that I uh, work with with my clients is understanding what their own body is trying to tell them. And that's where we start. And if you if you have that under your belt, then it's the best thing. And I, I have to say, it's not even where I trained and how I started. I was a dancer, a ballet dancer for 14 years. So you know what that culture is all about. Then I went into plastic surgery. So you know what that culture is all about. And it really wasn't until I had my own health issues and had to figure out what not just looking better was, but actually being healthier really meant that I really understood what that meant for me. And that's what I try to bring to the, to the clients that I work with. I agree with everything that was said before, and I kind of think it goes back to what someone said earlier about what is the emotion that you want, like from all of this experience, why do you want to feel or look a certain way and just dealing and and kind of reflecting within like what makes you feel good and, and what can you appreciate about your body that it's able to do because some people don't have those capabilities and surrounding yourself with positive people that can also discuss those things like a good girlfriend group or family members that you can talk to and and just share how thankful you are for certain things that you can do it doesn't matter what you look like and then in terms of the patients also sharing that with them trying to figure out why do you want to lose this weight what will it help you do do you want to be able to climb a flight of stairs okay let's work on that do you want to not get winded when you walk to the mailbox that's great. Do you want to get your heart failure better or any of the other medical conditions that may get better with the weight loss? But like, what do you want to gain from that? And how will it help you continue to live your best life? I I might be repeating a bit, but really with my clients and myself, we really focus on that gratitude that Dr. Folden mentioned. What makes your body unique? What does your body do rather than what it looks look like? What are the unique things that your body can do? And even like kind of faking it till you make it, you know, really trying every day to say something positive about yourself. Doesn't even have to be about your appearance, but just something positive, say it out loud, say it in front of your children. That can really kind of start to shift that belief system. And we know that gratitude can really rewire our brain. And so if we can practice it each day, there's no telling how that'll shift our own body image. I'm just going to amen that one because I agree with the gratitude piece and just how the fake it till you make it. I, I tell that to clients a lot, right? They're like believing that you are whole, that we're not going to really find someone different, but we're going to refine who you are and uncover who you are is like such a different process than fighting against myself. So really trying to help clients work with their bodies rather than against their bodies and understand what that looks like. As Anna said, it really comes from a place of finding gratitude, even if it's like the tiniest little thing every day, like what, you know, one little thing that we can focus on and move forward from. And then just reminding people that it's a process, right? 
it took 40 years to get me here <laughs> in this way of thinking. And like, it's gonna maybe take that long to reverse it, right? And so every time I can turn away from those thoughts and towards something that's more uplifting is a win and just continuing to find those wins. And it's not their fault, right? Like we're all swimming in diet culture all the time. So it's no one's fault to be thinking that way. I second everything that everyone's said. Just I personally focus on things that make my body feel good mentally and physically. And just like Anna was saying, kind of have those uh, phrases <laughs> that just kind of give you that momentum to go forward if you're having a bad day or you're just not feeling good in your body. And that's the exact thing that I tell my clients too. Thank you everybody so much. We really, really appreciate you being here. And this was an incredible conversation beginning to end. It, it was very, very interesting and we can't wait to share it with our listeners. Thank you. What an amazing conversation. I absolutely love our roundtables. I think there's so much value in putting a group of experts from different industries together to discuss topics that are important and relevant to us. I feel like I always walk away with a better understanding of not only the issue we've been talking about, but also the medical arena and the healthcare system itself. Here are three takeaways from our conversation today. One, one thing I've learned during my journey with Her Health Collective is that we must all be our own best advocates when it comes to our healthcare. It is essential we create a partnership with our healthcare providers and always seek out care from those that are aligned with our goals. Second and third opinions, never a bad idea. Today, we heard a fabulous discussion between several well-educated and highly trained professionals. There were some differences in opinions. And while that can sometimes be uncomfortable, it is those moments that are often most important for everyone involved, including us, the listeners. This is how we learn and how we can begin to develop our own viewpoints on what can sometimes be contentious topics. Two. Over and over again today, we heard how focused on money the diet industry is. Health and wellness are big money makers for companies. And as savvy consumers, we always need to keep that in mind. Anytime we feel tempted by another fad diet or a magical potion or pill or some guru promising sensational results if we sign up for their program, it would behoove us to remember this fact. In truth, we've all have what we need to pursue health and wellness, and it is within our body already. We can certainly always stand to benefit from the help of trusted doctors, fitness professionals, nutritionists, and indeed, there are certain scenarios and diagnoses where the help of these individuals is essential. But in general, so much of our overall health and well-being comes down to us knowing and trusting our bodies. Three, the ideal body has fluctuated throughout history. We will undoubtedly see fluctuations again in the future. For mothers in particular, as you stand in front of the mirror, looking at the body you've been blessed with, perhaps with your child standing not too far away, watching and soaking in your every move, remember that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. During any era of time, society may dictate what is the physical ideal, but we never have to succumb to that dated mentality. We can set our own ideal and it certainly doesn't need to involve the number on the scale. Thank you so much, friends. We'll see you next time. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. 
We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you. Thank you.